Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS and I'm alongside food superstar, Thea Lenarduzzi. Hello, Thea. Hello. My dad listens to this podcast and they came up this weekend and they took my kids to Pizza Express and my son, great little fellow that he is, wanted a Hawaiian pizza. Mm-hmm. They don't do Hawaiian pizza at Pizza not. Express. No. You'd think they might do, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I would. But they don't which right. I think you'd approve of. Yeah. My dad had a Veneziana. Yeah. Which has raisins in it. Yeah. Now, it, now come on. Is that acceptable in the Italian well, mode? It sounds so, Italian. Well, I mean, I don't like the sound of it, but no. you did mention this it's got earlier. Egg, it's got eggs, isn't it? Eggs and raisins, I Oh, think. I don't know. I, I, don't, I didn't see anything about that, but mm. I did. you mentioned it this morning, so yeah. I did. You <laughs> have investigated, up. good. I have investigated. Um, and it does exist. And it sort of makes sense for there to be raisins on it, because I suppose if you think of Venice historically a meeting ground, you know, major port for where East meets West. Okay. And raisins would have been a quite luxurious at the time, expensive ingredient. So you'd also expect to find pine nuts, for example, which you do on this pizza. I understand. Veneziana Uh, pizza. I don't like the sound of it. No, no, no. Um, But when I did dug a little bit further, apparently the founder of Pizza Express, (laughs) and this is not a promotion. No, um, no, I don't believe you're a Pizza Express aficionado. I will leave you to think what you will. Yes, exactly. Um, But so the the founder of Pizza Express invented the Veneziana sometime in the 70s in partnership with a conservation charity called Venice in Peril. And a portion of the proceeds from each of those Veneziana pizzas goes to this fund to, you know, save Venice, essentially. And it's raised so much money over the years and awareness. Okay, here we go. Um, Apparently he has been made the founder, um, Peter Boisot. Boizo yeah. uh, has been made uh, Comendatore of the um, Ordine del, uh, al Merito, which is the highest honour that you can be given by the Italian state. Pine kernels, red onion, capers, black olives, sultanas, mozzarella and tomato. Oh, it sounds horrible. It does. But also I feel that the snobs who cock a snook at Hawaiian pizzas. Yeah, me. You, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say what you mean. Yeah, I feel that's no different. I, well, no, I don't. No. I don't really like the sound of either. Although I do think that Hawaiian is 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 a different. Sarah, our producer, thumb up or thumb down for Venezia? Oh, thumb down. Yes, nice thumb one, down. Sarah. Well, I'm glad we've done our, we've done we've done the, we've done the pizza bit. Uh, here's the bit where I encourage you to subscribe to the TLS. Use this special offer code and get on board. The-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. 
all one word podcast offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet, five issues for five pounds or five dollars. I'd like to think of people listening to this and going off and doing that. This week, we cautiously enter the world of science fiction with a vast gleaming issue of intergalactic plenitude and lots of other stuff too. Lucy Dallas, SF aficionado, has returned to her northern roots for the day. We couldn't let her escape, so she'll be on the line talking about one of her favourites, the nine-volume space opera by James S.A. Corey. From the extraterrestrial sublime back to Earth with a bump, the impeachment of Donald Trump. But what is the historical precedent for such a move going back to the Middle Ages, I hear you cry? Fear not, Lawrence Douglas will tell us. And much has been made of T.S. Eliot's recently revealed letters to Emily Hale. Well, the poet Hannah Sullivan has been to Princeton to look at them and will be reporting back to us. I once reviewed three big science fiction novels for the TLS back when I was a jobbing reviewer and I did kind of enjoy them, but I felt perhaps I was missing out on something. So this week in the paper, we've had a very thorough exploration of the genre from its early century gentlemanly origins, Wyndham and Wells, through the drug-inflected 1960s to its more modern and perhaps more egalitarian incarnation today. Lucy Dallas has written about one of her faves, the space opera called The Expanse by James S.A. Corey who she comes up by the way of Ursula Le Guin, who may well be the mother of modern fantasy fiction. Lucy can tell us more and is on the line now. Hello, Lucy. Hello, hi. You're an interesting choice to talk about science fiction because as we've just been discussing, uh, you don't actually have a proper phone that takes email, apparently. <laughs> so you're up to about 1980 in your own personal life, but in, in the world of fantasy fiction, you're well ahead in the future. In theory, anything is possible. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, right, before we get into uh, The Expanse, you begin your review, lovely review, by the way, Lucy, on the stick versus the carrier bag theory of fiction. Yes, which I would like to claim as mine, but it's absolutely not. It sounds like um, nonsense. <laughs> no, it's not nonsense either. It was actually put forward by, she was a kind of anthropological historian, I think, called Elizabeth Fisher in the 70s. And that was about a theory of evolution. Okay. In, in that the first device, we often think of the first tool as being some sort of weapon, like a stick to bash things with or to bash animals or to make fire, whatever. But actually, she suggests that it's a bag, a carrier bag, because if you go out foraging for food, you can put all the food in your bag. You can put the baby in your bag while you're out foraging for food. And, and Ursula Le Guin takes this in an essay she wrote in the 80s and says, what if that applied to fiction? She basically says, fiction is often sort of very directional as a hero, there's a thing to do, and the hero fights lots of people and then he does it. What if it was a bag? What if you put all sorts of things in it and they got all mixed up in it and the end wasn't so obvious? And so and even, even though it's a genre, and genre fiction is actually peculiarly stick fiction in some respects because it tends to have plot as its major device and wants you to take you from A to B if you look at westerns or you look at um, detective fiction. Actually, yeah. she's saying science fiction is kind of unusually capacious. Yes, or it can be, and she very much likes that idea and wants to apply it to her own fiction, yeah. and particularly science fiction, because she says, okay, so in the bag you can have all the human stuff that you would have, you know, relationships, people not understanding things, but you can also have spaceships, missions, not, not 
successful missions that constantly get there, but missions that go wrong and people who misunderstand things and then there's a transformation along the way and it all gets jumbled up. It's quite interesting to just think about lots of works of fiction and say stick or bag or a bit of both. I tell you what, that's a game, isn't it's it? A game, yeah. Stick or bag. Right. So, so, so Tristram Shandy, right. Tristram Shandy bag. Bag, bag. absolutely bag. Uh, <laughs> and I thought um, stick, Odyssey bag. Okay. More or less. Even though Odyssey's kind of a directional journey that goes from A to B. A long time. Well, yeah, but it could be a long it's stick. A very big bag. Oh, very lot, of trans- very deep lot of transformations bag. along the way. Mm. Uh, a lot of shape shifting. And why is this particularly true of science fiction? Is this because you actually got this quote, which is lovely, lugging the, about, she's talking about science fiction, and, and she says, lugging this great heavy sack of stuff full of beginnings without ends, of initiations, of losses, of transformations and translations, and far more tricks than conflicts, far fewer triumphs than snares and delusions, full of spaceships that get stuck, missions that fail, and people who don't understand. Why is, yeah, that, I, why is that true of science fiction? Apart from the ships, why is that not true of human life generally? I think it is, but I think she was applying it to science fiction because, uh, I'm guessing this now, I'm extrapolating, but that's what she wanted to do and did try and do in her own fiction it as i say it's not only this sort of human dimension science fiction i suppose you could think about anything you know there's no there are no boundaries on you because there is some science fiction that wants to follow basic rules of of physics isn't there as well which which means that not everything is possible there is some science fiction that sort of imposes constraints on itself yes i'm not sure how recent that is i mean i was reading robert Irwin's piece about the 60s science fiction and it, it's very good his piece and very funny and he says that that sounds a bit like people can just do anything yeah. it sounds a bit more like sort of villain ted you can just pop up anywhere you want and you know you can go anywhere you want you can travel laterally in the blink of an eye you're not bound by anything it's more like magic almost yeah Whereas what they call hard science fiction, which of the uh, the recent people are people like Alistair Reynolds, who has worked at NASA or the European Space Agency for a while, and Kim Stanley Robinson and people like that. And this one that I've reviewed, you have to operate within the laws of physics as we know them. So you can't go faster than the speed of light, for instance. But they do like, when I read these books for the TLS, one was an Ian Banks book about the culture, which is his sort of giant space kind of opera world that he, he's created. And one of the things that struck me was it's just full of what John Updike, who didn't like science fiction, called plenitude. Mm. It's just full of stuff. So this great heavy sack of stuff that Ursula Le Guin talked about was kind of literal. It was very shiny and full of tech and, you know, vast expanses and spaceships that were, you know, 5,000 miles long and and, and everything was glinty and shiny. Is there a kind of techno-fetishism about a lot of sci-fi and science fiction? And if that's the case, do you like that side of it? I think there probably is a bit of it. And and with regards to it being big, I mean, not to be facetious, but space is quite big. Is it? So <laughs> Space may not exist, uh, a I'm, podcast we had earlier this year. It may be an imaginary. It might be, it might be a nanoparticle. Yeah. If, but as far as we can tell, if we go with the old theory that space is quite big, yeah. then you do have to deal... The thing that I like about it, so particularly in the expanse, let's say, not everything is glinty. Sometimes they're in an old spaceship and they're moaning because they've got no room. They're actually living on top of each other. It's as though they're living in a small house. You're in a spaceship for months at an end and you get the same food the whole time. Uh. And you've got to make sure the air recycler is topped up and you better make sure that nobody gets too annoyed with anybody else. It's a bit like Red Dwarf. <laughs> I read Red Dwarf books when I was younger. Is that, was that that's science fiction, isn't it? 
I'm afraid I don't know. Uh, I bet you I mean, don't I've either. I've seen about two minutes of it, sorry. I, yeah, I only know it as a, as a TV programme. I had no idea that it came from... Well, there are, there are books as well. They may have written books off the back of the TV programme. But it, it was... I, I, know, I quite liked it. But a lot of the thrust of it was you go a million miles in space and you end up as if you're still where you were because the same griefs and moans and sort yeah. of ordinary drudgery you've brought with you. Well, except exactly. in, in, in The Expanse, and this is really interesting, um, you make the point that it's a sexism-free world that they're imagining. And I say they because James S.A. Corey is, in fact, two people. Yes, yes, he is. They've done this interesting thing because, you know, if it's a, if it's a world in the future, you can do whatever you want. So there's been a lot of space exploration and they seem to have, this is not explicitly stated, they seem to have got rid of any gender or sexual prejudice or problems. Nobody cares who sleeps with who. Nobody cares if you're a man or a woman. People, there are quite a lot of marriages where there are like eight people at once. But racism is still very much there based on which planet you're from, not what colour you are. Is that kind of a metaphor? I think that's just the way they've, got, they've chosen to go. I mean, in a way, that's what I like about it. So it's a thought experiment. All fiction is a thought experiment. But with science fiction, you can keep the human dimension. You, I mean, you, you don't have to, but, you know, like you were saying, you take your griefs and everything with you. Yeah. But you can also expand it out wherever you want. And so because racism is still there from whether you come from Earth or Mars or an outer planet, and politics is still, of course, very much there. Colonialism is there. The military is still there. All of there's a lot of very familiar things. Does that put it in the centre of the culture war that exists? I'm, I'm struck by that Ros Caveney was writing about that this week, where she's talked about some of the various problems science fiction has with its sort of relatively recent past, where it was very white, it was very male, and a bit unwelcoming to people of different backgrounds. And maybe that's changing. But actually, because it's has this theoretical possibility and it can address big issues. Um, in whatever direction it chooses, it occurs to me that it could be particularly liable to get involved in a culture war because it's looking at culture in its broadest possible sense. Yes, exactly. I think that that is right. And it's not surprising that there have been a kind of fights and upsets going on in the science fiction world as there are everywhere else. And the funny thing about it is that there was a strong strain of white, male and frankly rather racist writers but there's always been the other stuff as well. I mean, there's always been people writing about all sorts of things that nobody else was thinking about at the time in terms of gender and race and ecology and, you know, all of those things. Recently, there were, there were quite a lot of prizes named after some people with some pretty uh, unsavoury views, and they were trying to get that turned over. And there was the whole thing where the sad, self-styled sad puppies tried to rig um, an awards list because they were fed up of the so-called liberal um, consensus. Though it didn't work because then most of the awards were not awarded that year and now, actually, because of the spotlight on that, it's much more diverse than it was before. And a lot of, of brilliant stuff is being written about race and gender, but not just that, by a very diverse set of writers. Well, and it sort of seems to make sense in a way because if sci-fi has sort of been, or SF has sort of been a bit of an outsider genre, a bit, you know, pushed to one side, it would seem like a natural place for non-white male writers to really thrive. Ross Kevney also argues that uh, Ursula Le Guin may be a bit old-fashioned because we've gone past the point where sweet reason and renunciation will help us. So she sort of argued in the 60s she was this great dominant figure who wrote these beautiful books, you know, even in fantasy as well, like The Wizard of Earthsea, where there was a kind of kindness. And sort of Kevney seems to be saying, actually, that's lovely, but we've gone well past kindness now. 
Well, I don't think that's true. I mean, there's, I know what she means, but I think if we say we've we've had enough of kindness and sweet reason, we've had it. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of kindness in the expanse. There's a crew of four that we really follow, and um, they go through all sorts of things, but there is plenty of connection. Would I like it, Lucy? Would I? Because it struck me reading your review that it's a bit of a detective story. Is that fair? It is. Yeah, yeah. I like detective stories. I like sort of road movie type things. I like buddy things. I like, you know, a naff sentimentalist I am. I like things where there's sort of narrative progression and people gang together and, and they, they do things in a plot-based fashion. Is this I all think, stuff I would like in the, this, these books? I absolutely think so. I mean, for some people, they can't get past what... Uh, I remember I was talking to David Craig about um, a stage show he did and he called The Fremulator... Some people can't get past the kind of, everyone's called Karg or full of machines that you don't know the names of, but yeah. the expanse is quite good at this. I see no re- reason why you wouldn't like it. And actually, the thing about the tropes that you're saying is a bit of a detective and it's a bit of this is really interesting because Ros Kevney says in her piece, the tropes of genre, she's saying that the books use the tropes of genre in a cumulative way as literary gestures as much as plot points. And I think that's, that is a thing that science fiction can do. Will you bring me one in? Can you bring the first one in? Yeah, I've got eight. Yeah. <laughs> do they feel self-contained, or do you, do you have to start at one and then does it, you know, does it finish itself in a way? It probably does, but I'm I'm not the right person to ask. I mean, they're very they're, no. I think I think it would probably catch you up pretty quickly. But I basically inhaled them after the first. <laughs> I, things, I love book, I love books like as you know that's my dream. Yeah. I love finding a, a, a series. I um, feel if you bring one of these in for Stig, Lucy, we might just not see him for that, months. It's a win-win for everybody, so, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I will bring it in. You know, you, you, know you mentioned the sort of Karg thing. I, I was looking back at this review I wrote, and it's about this, uh, this Banks book, and people's names were kind of deliberately, it felt to me, kind of obs- looked like someone had dropped a Scrabble tiles and just picked, them, picked up 14 of them in random. You know, sort of... Yeah. And, and I wonder, actually... Is that a deliberate thing? Because it's not. It doesn't want to be too. Is there a thing where, because it's not always been respected, because it's always maybe been a bit on the outside, is there part of it as a genre that is happy with that? It doesn't want to make itself too easy because it's kind of gloried in its outsiderdom. I don't know about that. Maybe, but I do think, like, so in the Expanse, the crew are called Jim, Naomi, Alex, and Amos. So right. you don't get me any cogs for ages and ages yeah. and ages. And I find that happens more in the stuff that's being written now. There we, tends to be a lot less cargoness because if you get five pages of it, it, it can be a bit... It can be much, can't it? I just felt that I just yeah. don't want to see another name. It just feels like it's sort of self-evidently... It's almost sort of glorying in its silliness. Silliness, I would dispute. Right. <laughs> but, but yeah, maybe. Thea, do you want to borrow it as well? Um... No, she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound great. Yeah. I'm just, I'm hesitant to commit to are we, nine, my, nine books. Yeah, there's nine of them. Yeah, are there, are other, there are other things that I, I need to get to first. So no, I'll, I'll there's put a nothing hold else on that. <laughs> All right, Lucy, I promise on air now I will read it because I love stuff like that. I love finding a new series. Fantastic. The only danger is me forgetting to lend it to you, but I'll, I'll do what I can. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, well, well we've, we've said it in public now, so it'll have to happen. Lucy, uh, you've, you've kindly joined us from the north. Is it cold there? It's freezing sleet. Is it really? Oh, proper yeah. weather. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Is, is that nice having proper weather? It's dramatic. Yeah. But cold. Yeah. 
still a bit cold. Right. Well, look after yourself, Lucy. Thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Thank you. I th- well, because you're not a jo- you're not a jo- lover of genre. I don't really find it helpful to recognise it. Oh, to be honest, I don't. You have to. It's well, there. No, but so well, it is and it isn't. I just like good books. Well, I know I like good books, but I mean, there are a million books. You have to find areas that are most likely. Well, to no, be... I know. But even when I was trying to think about sci-fi now, and I was like, "What have I? I must have actually read sci-fi." And it very quickly becomes apparent that yes, of course I have, because loads of loads like of what? books. Well. High Rises is, is is SF. Ballard, yeah. Yeah, so well, he would be, yeah, he, but he is an he is Doris a Lessing. I mean, the cleft that's sort yeah. of in that it's an alternative. Oh, old uh, Margaret world. Atwood is a bit. Margaret Atwood. Yeah. Actually, read... I read Daniel Keyes, which I was very pleased to see um, starts Robert Irwin's yeah. review because I was like, yes, I have actually really read that one. Yeah, I was going to say someone else who is kind Ridley of Ridley Walker. That's you know. Yeah, sort of a past and future yeah. mishmash. Yeah. So, but you, but you wouldn't necessarily dive into it and go. I'm now going to spend the next six months. Reading. I wouldn't if I were putting my books on shelves. I wouldn't put them all on the same shelf. No. Okay. So that's that's what I'm saying. Oh, aren't you open-minded? <laughs> well done for you. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Now, if an alien were to be dropped into Washington, D.C., what would he or she or it make of the politics there? Well, probably not much more than the rest of us. We've got the televised spectacle of an impeachment trial in which the outcome is based not on legality, but on politics. The most powerful man in the country being challenged, but with no sense that he could actually be toppled. And an argument raging that the process will even help him by energising his base without converting any doubters in the other direction. Anyway, let's focus on the legal question. We asked Professor Lawrence Douglas from Amherst College the question, when can you impeach a president? And he's reviewed a couple of books and his answer is absolutely fascinating. He's on the line now. Lawrence, hello. Hi. Uh, Let's start with the Constitution, uh, which is where you start. A president can be impeached if he committed treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanours. So is the first question that's been wrestled with that are we talking always about crimes? Is that sort of the central question from a legal perspective at stake? 
Well, yeah, I mean, you certainly hear, if you've been watching the uh, Senate proceedings, their arguments on both sides, well, high crimes and misdemeanors, the, uh, the House managers insist, well, that does not actually mean uh, crime in the narrow technical legal sense. Trump's uh, defenders come back and say, no, the language high crimes and misdemeanors means what it sort of sounds like that actually you do need to have demonstrable evidence of a real crime technically conceived. And so um, we have to kind of go back and look at it historically. And if you go back and look at it historically, it seems like the answer is pretty clear. Now, do you want that pretty clear answer? I would like that pretty clear. And I'm proud to say that it comes from the 14th century parliamentary practice in this country. Yes, indeed it does. In fact, uh, this language of high crimes and misdemeanors, I think, appears for the very first time in an impeachment proceeding all the way back in 1386. And it seems pretty clear that, uh, I mean, the parliament had many, had a kind of long, centuries-long experience with impeaching people. And it seems very clear that the parliamentary process, which supplied the inspiration for the American model, uh, the parliamentary process did not require crimes narrowly conceived or technically conceived, that abuse of office was more than consistent with the language of high crimes and misdemeanors. And it seems pretty clear that the framers of the U.S. Constitution, who simply adopted the language from parliamentary practice, that they thought exactly the same thing. I mean, if you look, for example, in the Federalist Papers, uh, the Federalist Papers were documents that were written by a handful of framers. Alexander Hamilton. Yes, Alexander Hamilton and uh, James Madison and John Jay. And if you look at what Alexander Hamilton says in Federalist 65, he says very clearly that abuse of office, that is without any kind of technical crime, suffices to um, satisfy the condition of high crimes and misdemeanors. So that's the word misdemeanor doing. Is that, is, that, is that the point that misdemeanor can conceal a multitude of sins? Well, it's funny because misdemeanor sounds like, if you think about it from a uh, a contemporary legal perspective, like a high misdemeanor or misdemeanors are things like jaywalking. (laughs) Um, So you don't usually think of jaywalking as something that would then justify the removal of a president of the United States. So I think it reminds us that this language has a long, long history, and you can't simply try to insert contemporary understanding of what the terms mean in order order to parse the uh, constitutional language. But I mean, Roughly speaking, what we're saying is that it originally it was it was a moral crime. So, you know, acting irresponsibly or or in a way that was not becoming of your, your place in office. So it's a much more nebulous thing to define, to pinpoint and say that is 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 incorrect behavior. Yeah. In fact, it seems pretty clear that the, the framers of the Constitution in borrowing the English language, they really meant to have kind of a placeholder for all sorts of behavior that was tantamount to either reckless behavior in office, gross negligence in office, abuse of the office, uh, but basically for behavior that demonstrated that the incumbent was unfit for the presidency. And if if that were the case, if we were taking it at its broadest, then it would seem that you'd be very hard-pitched to say that Donald Trump shouldn't be (laughs) convicted, because if it's at the state of recklessness, if it's acts unbecoming to an office if it's inappropriate conduct, inappropriate or words. Alexander Hamilton's formulation and abuse or violation of some public trust, and we're talking about public funds specifically, yeah, but, we? so but it's but, even more so. But even in its broadest, just his general conduct yeah. feel, feels like it would be impeachable, wouldn't it, by that standard? That's true, even though, again, I think it's probably right for, I mean, given the fact that impeachment is what we might say is a pretty radical stopgap. I mean, this is something that you are ultimately overturning the outcome yeah. of a democratic yeah. election that we probably want to hold it to a somewhat 
higher threshold. So maybe if we're talking about abuse of office, we want to kind of insert some kind of egregiousness standard. Uh, standard. Yeah. Now, I think probably it is fair to say that uh, Donald Trump has acted pretty egregiously from day one. But nevertheless, I do think it was probably wise on the part of the um, House Democrats to wait until that egregiousness standard was really satisfied by his behavior um, with respect to Ukraine. Of course, it, it seems very uh, likely that nothing particularly good is going to come from this impeachment. Well, we'll get to anyway. that in a moment because I, I, I think that's 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 fascinating. Is 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 one version of events with your with your legal perspective that if this were to be a definable crime versus an egregious abuse of office which has a sort of moral weight if it were the former is it your view that donald trump has a credible defense but he doesn't in the latter is it as straightforward as that i think that's pretty fair to say i mean i guess the general accounting office uh, concluded that he had engaged in uh, that he basically had broken a law they'd engaged in an illegal act in withholding the uh, congressionally authorized funds to the ukraine the 391 million dollars but they never said that he committed a crime. I mean, we have to remember that there's a difference between illegal acts and criminal acts. Yeah. And so there's no real allegation right now that he's engaged in kind of criminal behavior. So to the extent that, I mean, which is another one of the reasons why his defenders want to insist that the language in the Constitution requires the demonstration of criminal behavior rather than just bad or stupid behavior. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the books that you review in uh, your pieces impeaches the trial of Andrew Johnson and uh, the dream of a just nation. How enlightening is it to, to compare uh, Trump's case with that case from 1868? Well, what's interesting is how little we learned from history in a certain way, because a lot of these questions that are being debated right now are exactly the same questions that were debated back in 1868. So... Uh, you had the same kind of argument as to what does how high crimes and misdemeanors actually mean. On a kind of deeper level, I suppose, the impeachment proceeding brought against uh, Andrew Johnson, it does look a little bit like the impeachment proceeding against Trump in the following sense. The House basically kind of used a technical violation, Johnson's technical violation of a law as an occasion to impeach him, when really what was that issue was his kind of larger abuse of the office with respect to trying to um, frustrate the Republicans from creating uh, an, a, an ambitious reconstruction program for the South in the wake of the Civil War. I mean, Johnson's position was very much that uh, the South lost, okay, but they can reconstruct their society almost exclusively along antebellum terms, leaving freed blacks in horrendous uh, conditions. And that basically was kind of a, his uh, impeachment was almost kind of a referendum about this larger vision of what the country should look like. Which is possible, which is a connection with Trump again, that again, if we were to take this at its broadest, the same thing could be said about Johnson as could be said about Trump. There's lots of things he did, the way he spoke, you talk about his swaggering vanity, his taste for public performance, his bullying, his disregard for, for minorities. Many people would put those claims directly on Trump. And some would argue that this that this impeachment, like Johnson's, is a technical way of judging him for all sorts of things that aren't necessarily under the terms of uh, of, of the law itself. Yes, precisely, exactly. And again, I you know I think in the piece I tried to point out that we shouldn't belabor the similarities between Johnson and and Trump, but it certainly is true that Johnson was an incredibly thin-skinned person who went after his enemies. Who I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which you can draw personal uh, similarities between the two. You do um, it very nicely, I, th yeah. I think, Lawrence. It's very nicely done in the piece. <laughs> a crucial difference, yeah. uh, Johnson was an autodidact with a lifelong passion for reading. 
yeah. book's not yes, about exactly. himself. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. He actually read a book, so yeah. that is a difference. Although there is an irony that I, I saw brought out that Trump may be brought down by John Bolton's book. Mm. So it'd be funny if a book were to bring Trump down, the, the lifelong <laughs> non-reader gets destroyed by a book. There's, there's, there's something ironic in this. I don't want to offend you, Lawrence, but I'm going to say this to you. Does all of this not show that the law, and even a sense of law, makes no difference when it comes to the hearts of the American states. Because Andrew Johnson won. He wasn't he was impeached, but he wasn't convicted, probably because he bribed several people to to, to vote his way. It is almost certainly the case that Donald Trump is not going to be convicted because partisanship is going to dictate that you need a two third majority and it's not going to happen. Does this in some ways make a mockery of the sense of legality at the heart of the state? Because actually the law and a just opinion that makes no difference. I am deeply offended. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> not, not, I'm not deeply offended. But, um, you know, I think one of the points that you're making, it actually kind of goes to the heart of the difficulty in really making sense of the impeachment process. Because on one level, the way you were characterizing it, you're treating the impeachment process as a kind of quintessentially legal process. And if you think of it as a legal process that is meant to render justice uh, conventionally conceived, then yes, it does look like uh, we're kind of making a mockery of that. On the other hand, in as much as the impeachment process is directed towards removing someone from the presidency, not from imposing any kind of criminal penalty, you can say that uh, it really is kind of a political process as much as it is judicial or legal. Yeah. And once you introduce politics into a process, then you can't necessarily accuse it of kind of, you can't then measure it by the same standards that you would measure, let's say, a criminal trial. Why dress it up I mean, as a criminal trial? I mean, the, the parallel that strikes me in this country, in, in Britain, you, have, you can vote of no confidence, a government. And that ultimately, although they've, in, in, there were some complications in the last two years, to say the very least, but theoretically, a vote of no confidence can bring down a government. And you don't have to dress it up with, have they done something that's a high crime and misdemeanor? You just say, we've, we don't believe this is government functioning. And that's therefore pure politics, because it's actually in the realm of, of the functioning government. Is this a problem that you're trying to do that in America, but dressing it up in some of the robes of the legal system? You know, I think that's a terrific point because there are a lot of people who say that, you know, one of the problems with this is, uh, you know, you can say it's part of the problem is the hyperpartisanship of uh, politics in America today. But you can also say part of the problem is with the constitutional design itself. I mean, after all, we're talking about a document that was drafted in 1787. Uh, you've got a book coming out called brilliantly titled Will He Go? Trump and Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. Um What's the political consequence? So you're good on the law, but you're good on the politics as well. What's the political consequences of this process? The, uh, some of the Democratic candidates, of course, in their primary are stuck in the Senate, so they're trying Trump, so they're not out on the campaign trail. That's not true of Biden, uh, for example. Some people believe that Trump facing this impeachment, this is good for him because it energises his, his base. What do you think the political outcome of this will be on the basis, presumably, that you don't think he'll be convicted? I think part of it has to do with whether Bolton uh, testifies. I think if it were the case that the trial was able to end very quickly with the expected acquittal, then it's possible that Trump could come away from this actually so much stronger. I think a very deeply, deeply, deeply unfortunate outcome. I do think, though, if Bolton uh, comes and testifies and the process drags out, even though the result will remain inevitably that he'll be acquitted, that... Um, at least to the independent voters out there, ultimately the process could have some kind of positive effect if it weakens um, 
Trump candidacy in 2020. And that again would be the Andrew Johnson effect because that's effectively what happened there, isn't it? He stayed on for a year, but it was a it was a weak one. Exactly. That's exactly right. So even though Johnson was acquitted by that single vote um, in the Senate, he was a very weakened president. And in fact, he failed to even capture the nomination of his party for the uh, next presidential election. So it's not even that he lost uh, the national election. He wasn't even the party's candidate. I remember talking to some Republicans last year where they were talking tough, potentially because they were embarrassed by Trump, I think, when they said, oh, maybe we should primary Trump and see if we can put a Republican candidate against him. But they're not going to do that, are they? That Trump is the Republican candidate for 2020. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of shocking the degree to which Trump is able to capture the entire Republican Party and to kind of turn it into a, a mirror of himself. Um, you know, you have people Hideous like image. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, it's just quite shocking. We had a piece by Andrew Sullivan, who's a conservative commentator, and he. And I just wonder whether this is the theme of your book, uh, Lawrence, which is that he said he could perfectly believe Trump loses a close election, refuses to recognise the validity of it. He's got a lot of quite militant people who might start standing on certain states' rights or, or perceived rights and say they don't accept the judgment of the electorate. Is that the thrust of what you're saying, that, that, that this is not entirely straightforward, that there's a clean election coming? That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, that's basically the, kind of the focus of uh, my book. I mean, one of the things that everyone assumes is that, well, uh, the election is the kind of the proper way. I mean, even people who um, maybe question his fitness in office, but doubt the the propriety of removing him through an impeachment proceeding, say like, well, let the people decide in 2020. Well, that assumes that, well, first of all, it presupposes that he's going to lose. And basically, my book tries to argue that if it's a close election or election in which the result can be contested, that Trump is not going to concede. And actually, kind of the main thrust of my book, which might be a little bit different from what um, Andrew Sullivan was suggesting, is that if you look at the kind of the laws that we have in place in the United States, to deal with an election that can that becomes very problematic. These laws provide no bulwark whatsoever from stopping a rogue president from trying to stay in office. I mean, it's kind of shocking how poorly equipped we are to deal with electoral crisis in this country. And, one, and, and, and you accept the argument that this could be this could lead to civil unrest because you, you, you could have someone who's not known, who is known rather for demagoguery and whipping up a base saying, I'm not going anywhere. And then you have a potentially very volatile situation. Yes. I mean, let's, I mean, there are more guns in the United States than there are uh, people and, um, or roughly one to one. And, uh, and I would imagine that um, a lot of those guns are concentrated in the hands of people who are fervent supporters of Donald Trump. But, you know, we don't even necessarily have to imagine a civil war scenario to imagine an election that just turns into kind of a a hideous uh, meltdown. And again, a lot of it has to do with the way in which our law is ill-equipped to deal with uh, narrowly contested. I mean, if you slot Donald Trump into the place of Al Gore in 2000, recall that there was this incredibly tight election result in 2000 between Al Gore and George W. Bush. You slot Donald Trump in the position of Al Gore, and you have a complete election meltdown in the United States. The consequences of that cannot fully be predicted. I mean, in a funny way, we've had a bit of a experiment in this country where we had a narrowly contested referendum, which was not our normal way of going about business. And it's taken us three years and an awful lot of angst 
and awfulness to get to a position where the 52% verdict is being upheld and, and, and on Friday, when we're recording this on Friday, that it, we, we are going to Brexit. But that's three years in a, in a slightly more, I suspect, Pacific country in the way we do our politics, uh, Britain. Then that's a, probably a bit of an analogous situation, isn't it? That this was a, you know, what happens when something is so closely contested? What happens to the losers? That's exactly right. I mean, though, on the other hand, I mean, you're talking about how to engineer a political response to a, a kind of a national referendum. I mean, we couldn't afford to have three years in which we can't figure out who the president of the United States is. I mean, that's that's a, that's a particularly dangerous uh, situation. Uh, we don't but, want to think about that one. Yeah, well, it might be might be better than the previous three years. Uh, so maybe a cynic would argue. Right. Well, I guess it depends who's occupying the uh, the acting presidency. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, Lawrence, well, what a great pleasure it is to, uh, to talk to you. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'd love to talk to you again as the, the year progresses. I very much enjoy that. Thank you so much, Lawrence Douglas there. When Ezra Pound said literature is news that stays news, he couldn't possibly have foreseen that 1,000-plus love letters written to one Emily Hale between 1930 and 1956 by his erstwhile protégé and later friend, the poet T.S. Eliot, would be big, big news in 2020. Our poetry editor, Alan Jenkins, came on this show a few weeks ago to fill us in, but if you missed that, here's a quick recap. In 1956, Emily Hale, a teacher and amateur actor with whom Elliot had fallen in love while a student at Harvard in the early 1910s, bequeathed letters Elliot had written to her over a 20-odd year period to Princeton University Library. It was agreed, at Elliot's behest, that the file would remain sealed until 50 years after the death of whichever one of the couple died last. In the meantime, Elliot burned all the letters in his own possession. After Hale died in 1969, the clock started ticking, and now here we are. The gates have opened. We have plenty of questions. What really was the nature of Hale and Elliot's relationship? Why did they never marry, when all indications were that they would and should? What was Elliot trying to achieve in the weird and clunky statement written in the 60s and released shortly after this archive was made public? Like many scholars, Hannah Sullivan has long been fascinated by the content of these letters and was only too eager to take a trip to Princeton. And while we can't pretend that we'll be able to answer all those questions on this podcast, (laughs) this is very much a developing news story. Hannah joins us on the line now to take tentative steps in that direction. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Your interest in these letters dates back 20 odd years. What did it feel like to you to finally you know, hold them in your hands? What were they like to, to read? That was pretty peculiar. I could have um, used digital copies, it turned out, afterwards, and some of the other researchers in the library were, um, because it's easier to go through lots of material at once, but that didn't occur to me. So I just had the real thing. So I'd, I'd never, in fact, held any of Eliot's letters. So there was a certain fascination in that alone. The paper was very thin. A lot of the letters, um, especially from the late 40s when I was reading, were airmail paper. Most of them were typed with the appellation and the signature by hand. So he writes, you know, dearest Emily or my dear. Or I think the most passionate one um, was the Emily in whom Tom lives. That that letter signed off. The new Emily Tom hyphenated as if he's become a kind of composite (laughs) person. Does it feel strange um, reading Love? I mean, because it's such a staple of the biographer's trade, and, and you know, there's an argument mm. about how that will be now in, in in the modern world. But certainly, for the period we're talking about, does it feel strange when you're eavesdropping on a on a love affair? Yeah, of course, and I think particularly strange in the case of Elliot, um, because the persona revealed in the letters is really quite different from you know the one that we've seen really in any of the other letters. I think or any of the other material that I'm familiar with. 
And I guess, I mean, all literary texts do have an ideal reader, maybe even an inscribed reader, but, but letters do have that in a very clear sense. Um, these letters, you know, as his note makes clear, are for Emily's eyes only, at least until the very end. There, there was one that spooked me out at the very end of the correspondence where he says, sort of directly to whichever eye who looks at the letters first at some future date i should like it to fall on this letter first and then to emily if you will add it i don't think i certainly wasn't the first eye but i guess i was one of the one of the first perhaps to have a look at that one well that is creepy why mm. why why did you begin your research in 1947 as i said in the introduction that they started corresponding in the in the 30s i mean i think even to call it my research would be almost um exaggerating it i was in new york my, my book was coming out in the states and I, I in the end only had one full day to spend there so 47 was sort of an economical way to cut to the chase i had also not been sure how busy the library would be and i thought it might be the case that all the boxes for the 30s had been taken out by other people um it, it the is significance a pivotal of- year Right, no, exactly. But the significance of 1947 as a sort of economical route to what to what happened is that Vivian Elliot, Elliot's first wife, died quite suddenly, unexpectedly in January. And so I realised that it will be in the early letters of that year that Elliot had the task, first of all, of telling Emily that I mean, he has to write a letter to let her know. And secondly, working out what was going to happen with the relationship once she died. And I, I was quite fascinated by the suggestion in that, that note that the Harvard Library released. It was a kind of sudden enlightenment, you know, that he realised instantly that when Vivian died that he didn't want to marry Emily, having not realised that or even having thought that he might want to for the previous 17 years. What happened? What changed? I mean, how did he go from so, you know, they were so sort of set that would have been their moment and yet... I mean, that's a, that's a little bit hard to say. I didn't read the letters from the war years when they, they didn't see each other. He'd been in 1946. I wish very much I'd read the letters from the summer of 1946. You know, those letters from February, March, you know, on into April 1947, incredibly painful to read, partly because the news comes out quite slowly in some ways, but also because he doesn't really seem to know himself. Um, he keeps referring to her confusion about his duality. He doesn't like using that word or his recantation. He pretends to believe she's talking about his lectures on Milton. But he, he keeps saying in language that's actually quite philosophical that this is the problem with knowledge derived from experience. You know, that's what his PhD dissertation had been on decades earlier, that it's only valuable um, for the experiences that you've already had, that when something new happens, like this particular death, you, you don't feel the way you expect to. He talks at some points as if the, the violent change in him, the, the division even that was produced in 1915 by marrying Vivian, kind of comes to an end. So that there's some period of time that stretches in his life from 1915 to 47, and that Vivian's death seals that off. And, and he keeps saying, and Emily obviously found this very hurtful because he refers in some of the letters to her, you know, somewhat angry responses that he's a new man, he's kind of a ghost, he's a figure that she's not seen before, that when he comes to Cambridge in May, she'll be seeing someone who's essentially a new person. No, he says a great deal of myself was dead when, when Vivian died. These are extremely well written. They're obviously, he talks about the difficulty of writing them, how he has to kind of wait for after lunch, you know, really think about what he's saying. There are some very elaborate metaphors, including this one um, about a mummy, where he says, you know, is that old story true? Um, that a a body is preserved exactly as it was at the moment of death until the mummy is opened and then instantly the flesh all crumbles away and all that you're left with is is bones. I mean, for a woman who was was waiting perhaps for a marriage proposal or at least for some of the sort of sexy, tender, exciting, excitable language of those letters from the 30s, this, this kind of funereal, ghostly hallucinated language or imagine would be incredibly painful was he incapable I mean, it strikes me when i'm listening to, to you talk about this that this is someone who was actually incapable of of rendering 
his feelings into very clear, short statements. It sounds mm. that this has a lot in common with his critical writings. You know, they're very involved, they're very cerebral. Uh, they're almost unwilling to touch at the sort of the throbbing nerve of what is what is actually going on. For love letters, they, they seem peculiarly like, the way you're expe- describing them, as sort of critical statements. That's a little bit hard to say, I think. I mean, the prose style of that period is somewhat different, perhaps more elaborate than, than we're used to. Some of the letters from the 30s, I didn't see very many of those. The middle 30s do have short sentences in, you know, short sentences of excitement or declaration. But I think it's, you're right that, you know, from the early 1910s onwards, from Proofrock, Eliot's poetry too is approaching a very revisionary syntax. You know, Proofrock replays these indecisions, the revisions. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true here as well, that he's in some ways trying to be scrupulously honest about what he feels, but the project of being honest is a difficult one and it requires, you know, a simple statement can't be made. It's not just enough to say, I suddenly realised that I didn't want to marry you after all or that I had no interest in sex. He is got to try to work out why, why that's happened. It must be so frustrating that, I mean, like you say, yeah. that not only not only at the level of, this is not the message I want to be hearing because I thought we had something, but also at the level of you're cloaking what you're saying in, in not quite euphemism, but it's being dressed up in in a way that that must be frustrating for the person who's trying to read it and, and decode it. Yes, it would be very interesting, wouldn't it, to read her responses. I mean, she didn't, um, he didn't destroy them immediately when she donated the, the letters. I think it's only in 1963, so after his second marriage has gone on for a few years before he decided to burn them. I suspect that a lot of her letters did say, I, I don't follow, I don't understand, because a lot of his language picks up on that point. And so I think he does try to be clearer but basically he's explaining it to her for two years you know even in 1949 he writes a letter saying I think I understand a little bit better now the thing that was a tremendous shock to me you know it's taken me two years he says there's not been a single day in the last two years when I haven't thought with pain about this situation about you and about the situation of us together. It's also this weird extended riff on the uh, whole uh, you know it's not you it's me sort of thing you say the worst part he says um, you will think it is something personal to yourself but but it isn't. (laughs) That's tough, isn't it? I mean, she, of course, he hadn't seen her for a number of years uh, during the war. He saw her in the summer of 46. I mean, by then she was a woman in her mid-50s when this second phase of the relationship, it was already a second phase, began. She was in her late 30s. That photo that I think you're running, you know, in the paper together with the article was taken in the summer of 46. I mean, she looks like a, you know, prim, middle-aged, even verging on elderly woman. Yeah. Um, I'm sure she must have been aware of these sorts of changes in her own body and appearance. The letters from the 30s are quite physical, but more so, I think, than this Harvard statement would lead you to expect. And he talks about her bathing costume, about her permanent wave, about how he wants to, you know, put his face into her hair. It was not a relationship, even if it wasn't consummated, that was without, you know, a sexual and physical... Well, he, he says very defensively, as you put it, sort of Clintonian yeah. fashion. I might mention at this point that I never had any time had and sexual relations with Emily yeah. Hale, which suggests... I think that, that, that line was revised. Strong, but, well, he, t- he mistyped it. He wrote and, and like, you, you meant any. The typing in that note is quite poor throughout, which is unlike the letters themselves, which are, are carefully typed except for occasion when he uses a new typewriter. Um, I think that suggests that perhaps he didn't have a great time writing it. And I think, I don't quite want to say it's perjury, but I think that that statement would have, he would have realised was not entirely true. And that I, perhaps they, I'm sure they probably never did consummate the relationship fully, although they might have done and evidence might yet reveal that. I mean, only one piece of positive evidence would be enough. But there's a lot of stuff about the difficulty of navigating an American summer hotel, about how they want to have a lot of privacy to make you think that it was certainly not a relationship that even on the surface to other people, you know, had 
the complete semblance of propriety and you know Emily's note which now has also been released but didn't get as much attention um, that's one of the ironies of the whole story you know it does say that friends both friends of hers and of his a small number but some of them knew that their intention was essentially to marry each other from the 30s onwards what we really need to ask um, is do these letters change the poems I mean the, the way we should read them yeah, I think they do. I think it wouldn't be too much. And I've read, you know, I have to emphasize again, a very small proportion. I mean, probably less than 10%. Not just that they change our reading of Eliot's poems, but of his thought of mid-century thought and, and probably of modernism in general. I mean, already Francis Dickey, who is an Eliot scholar, the former president of the Eliot Society, has uh, found a letter from James Joyce because one of Eliot's habits was having enclosures in the letters. You know, he was almost like, at points it's quite sweet that he sort of wants to show off about his successes in his career and about the people that he knows. And that's a really interesting letter from what I've been able to tell about politics um, that's from the 30s and a letter that wasn't known before. But as far as Eliot's own poems go, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the Ricks and McHugh edition is going to need quite substantial revision. It looks as if all of the poems from the 30s, at least under some light, are for Emily and that she might be regarded as the central figure in them. So Burnt Norton, the first of the four quartets, the one from which the others develop, I think is not only about going to Burnt Norton, you know, a house that's burnt down, that any gardens left with Emily, but it is about the relationship. It's about a relationship that has at its heart, you know, a central absence. Mm. And I also think some of the like, sorry, um, language in four quartets about the problems using words, which critics have often found really banal and sort of sententious, makes more sense, um, is is closer to personal feeling when you look at passages in the letters. And just finally, do you, do you think of him differently, Hannah? Because you, you, you'll have spent a lot of your yes. professional life thinking of him and considering his, his work. Do you think of T.S. Eliot, the man, differently now? Well, I do and I don't. To be honest, I thought the letters were going to be like this. I didn't think that they were just going to be, you know, discussions of her plays or, or kind of dry academic conversation because his is a character that is so obviously constructed around repression and that, you know, there is this very romantic side of him, um, which is, you know, he refers to that in tradition and the individual talent, you know, the only personalities who have these things, emotions and personality, know all of this or need all of this, need, need to repress them in certain ways. So in a way, it wasn't surprising but it also was surprising, you know, the language, the, the incredibly adolescent, in a way, tone of those early letters, you know, the, just the excitement, the kind of unguarded excitement. Does it humanise him a bit more? Totally humanises him. I mean, not, not just because of the romantic material, but he's petulant, he's gossipy, he gets grumpy when she says that he's mean because he hasn't phoned her and says, you know, you needn't have thought it was about the money. He says things about his family, about, you know, other writers about about even getting the Nobel Prize that something that most of us have, you know, can't really empathise with as a problem that are very humanising. Yeah. yeah, it's a fascinating piece you've written, and, and thank you so much for uh, for joining you. us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye. Um, Hannah mentioned James Joyce. Have mm. you ever read? This is me lowering the tone. I just want to flag that up in advance. Have you yeah. read James Joyce's letters to his wife? I haven't, no. The sex letters. Oh, I've heard, yes. They are absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> That's not surprising. No, it? no, it's not, it's not at all surprising. But even within the context of what you think, <laughs> if, do feel free, if you Google James Joyce Nora, I think it's Nora, isn't it? I'm worried. Yeah, sex letters, letters sex. Respectable, you know, it's, it is safe for work. Respectable organs, if I may use the term, have written about them. <laughs> uh, all I'm saying is they are extraordinary. Okay. I'll just I'll, I'll leave it saying no more than that. But it's, it's definitely worth checking out. Your 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 mind will be boggled. Yeah. Okay. Cue nervous laughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Hannah Sullivan, Lawrence Douglas, and of course to Lucy Dallas. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. This week, Mary Beard goes to Davos. Yep, the mind is boggling there as well. Plus, we look in homage to Thea. I actually thought of you as I was putting these pages together. Spaghetti Westerns. Oh, okay. The Italian crime novel. Yeah. Fascism. Yeah. La- the last one less so, but there was, a, there was an Italian... It's uneasily. Yeah. <laughs> understand. Yeah, but there was an Italian... There's an Italian <laughs> mini theme. Yes. <laughs> in tribute to you, dear. Uh, next week, we're not going to Italy. We're going to Russia, which should be lovely. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.